I'm not going to belabor the time any longer. I don't even have Mayor Karen's bio up here um, because we want to direct you to the webpage. That would just take up a couple more minutes of me being up here and you not hearing her. Uh, she is awesomeness in, in her own right. Uh, if you know my boss and I, some people don't know her because she's in D.C. a lot now, but my first introduction to Mayor Karen was we both have... I think we have a lot of personality, and her comment was, you two work together? <laughs> so those of you all that know she and I both, you understand why she said that. She attended Harvard Law uh, with my boss, and it was very funny when she said that. So um, uh, without further delay, I would like to introduce my good friend and the president and CEO of the Chicago Urban League, Mayor Karen Freeman-Wilson. <laughs> There's water under here. There's water under here. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> see, see that was. Thank you, my friend. Uh, yeah, Jackie and Kelly King working together. Scary. Well, good afternoon. Uh, first, I want to uh, sincerely thank uh, our president. And my good friend, Jackie Robinson Ivy, for not only that uh, gracious introduction, but for twisting the board's arm once again to invite me to join you today and certainly to uh, my friend and municipal cohort uh, and your CEO, Dan Gibbons and, uh, Gibbons and the entire um, team of the City Club of Chicago. Uh, everybody knows that Amanda is the boss, um, but uh, I do appreciate the opportunity to sit um, at this podium or to stand at this podium where so many have stood uh, and so many can stand uh, over the course of the one last 120 years. Uh, I want to certainly give a shout out to my Chicago Urban League family. Um, To our board chair, Suzette McKinney, who is here, and um, all of the board members, I just want you all to stand because you all are so supportive and uh, so kind. And uh, I won't even ask those who I've been uh, begging to be board member Z to stand. <laughs> But uh, I appreciate those of you who are, and uh, and then to our team, um, our uh, fearless leader. Cal oh, wait a minute, that's supposed to be our COO, Calmetta Coleman, <laughs> is uh, watching us online. Um, but to our entire or to the um, Chicago Urban League team who is here. I just want you to stand so that I can say thank you. Um, and tell you how grateful I am to each and every one of you. And then to Deborah Love and the women's board, um, the dynamic, uh, amazing women's board. I, I want them to stand of the Chicago Urban League. We have some phenomenal auxiliaries, um, but I would say the women's board, the Metro board, if you are not a part of a Chicago Urban League auxiliary, then uh, see us afterwards. We'll get you involved. And then uh, to so many of our partners, uh, our funders, our partners, the CBOC Collective, uh, so many of you who have joined us today uh, and to all of you who really um, want better for the city and citizens of Chicago, I bid you good afternoon. 
Uh, I feel like I'm in church because I've just gone down the entire rostrum. <laughs> but, uh, you know, protocol absolutely has its place. And so here we are. I have to tell you that I am excited uh, that and, and somewhat um, trepidated because we're on the eve of the publication of the state of black Chicago. And while I will sort of tease some of our findings and the root causes, I really want to point you in the direction of radical consciousness. And I know that sounds like a 60s term, right? (laughs) As we think about solutions. And so... I would ask you to indulge this recovering lawyer. I haven't practiced for 14 years, so I only get to practice on audiences like you (laughs) and my husband and my daughter who's watching online. Um, And as I prosecute the case of all of us, those of us in this room and those who are not in the room versus the racial wealth gap. Chicago, we have a problem. As I stated earlier, in a few weeks, we will release the 2022 State of Black Chicago. And this publication, as in many years before, will share significant data about those areas significant and critical to the successful pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness for all Chicagoans. We'll talk about um, wealth or household income. And in that discussion, we will learn that for whites, the median income is $82,294. For blacks, it's $46,329 more than um, or less than or greater than $25,000 for predominantly black communities. Uh, We will talk about those who live in poverty. And you will find that 28% of black households live in poverty compared to 17% of our Latin brothers and sisters and 16% of our Asian brothers and sisters and 11% of our white brothers and sisters. And so there's a significance, a significant difference in the poverty index uh, racially. We will also discuss home ownership. And we will reveal that between 2010 and 2019, Owner-occupied households in predominantly black neighborhoods in Chicago decreased by 13.6%. And that while many individuals um, were reeling from the 2008 housing crisis, uh, resulted in a lot of Chicago, uh, a lot of Chicago residents renting more than owning. What we found out about black residents is that they are much more likely to be rent burdened. Now, what does that mean? It means that they are paying more than 30% of their income on rent. And in many instances, of their income on rent. So if you think about it, you're paying 50% 
of your income on rent. That forces you to make a lot of decisions about transportation versus medicine, about food versus um, any recreation or support that you might provide to your children. These are difficult choices that many of us in this room don't have to make. And then as you look at um, our educational system, uh, we find that there is a significant difference in the high school graduation rate um, as well as the rate of achievement for freshmen and those who ultimately go to college and remain enrolled in college between black students and white students. And to put it mildly, the state of black Chicago will be extremely sobering. That's if we stop there. But, you know, I've always been that person and, um, Clotilde and, and Chelsea will tell you because, uh, we work together, uh, in, in the city of Gary. And even though I'm in Chicago, I've got to give a shout out to all the Gary folks in the house because I know there's some here. So the question then becomes, what is the solution? And as we talk about solutions today, I want to do it in the context of looking at how we got here, because I think that our history will really inform the type of solutions that we come up with. So when I say I want to take you back, I'm not going to take you all the way back because after all, this is a lunchtime conversation, right? <laughs> but it is important to understand history as we move forward because typically when scholars discuss the plight of black Chicago, when they discuss the plight of black people in America, they tend to go back to slavery. And certainly slavery has some relevance here. But today I want to outline a sequence of events of occurrences, of intentional actions that have laid the foundation for where we find ourselves today. What I would suggest to you that this is not merely a history lesson, but it's compelling evidence, told you, recovering lawyer, <laughs> of why we need to take extraordinary measures to change the lives of our residents. And suffice it to say that we need to be just as intentional in our solutions as those who laid the foundation for this were in their actions back at the turn of the 19th century. So let's go back to the history of the World's Fair where they gave us uh, a model city uh, back in 1893. This was supposed to be the ideal city that would um, really allow us to shine through the industrial age. And because it was a world's fair, it was a model for all cities across the America. But for Chicago, it was the fastest growing city in the world. In the early 1900s, uh, Lincoln Steffens described Chicago as being first in violence, deepest in dirt, loud, lawless, unlovely, ill-smelling, irreverent, new, and overgrown gawk of a village, the toughest among cities 
a spectacle for the nation. Now, you know, those are fighting words, right? (laughs) But the reality was that the infrastructure and housing were substandard. The river was the sewer system. Think about that, those uh, of you who are environmentalists. Simply put, like many American cities at that time, Chicago was a mess. But here's the irony of that. It was an integrated mess. Many of the whites in the city worked in the industrial sector. And most of the blacks, those who weren't professionals or business people serving largely the black community, lived all over the city because they were a part of, uh, of those who served others, janitors, domestic workers, and so they needed to live close to work. Chicago was integrated. Enter the migration of hundreds of thousands of blacks from the South and the city beautiful movement in the early 1900s, almost simultaneously. And what you saw was that the good aspect of that was it led people to organize around sanitation, around streets, around sewers, and the promotion of home ownership. But infused throughout this movement was a sense of social Darwinism uh, and white supremacy. In fact, realtors who emerged during this time frame used this ideology as the basis of the racial hierarchy chart that showed black residents as being the least desirable neighbors. You know, you had the most desirables and then you take it all the way down to Mexicans and blacks as being the least desirable. The city beautiful movement was also the premise for restrictive covenants. And if the covenants didn't do it, then the bombings did because anybody who thought that they wanted to move out of the area on the south side that became known as the Black Belt, or anyone who refused to move out of the neighborhoods that they already lived in and had been living in for a significant amount of time, neighborhoods like Hyde Park and other uh, Inglewood, which was integrated at the time, they were the victims of bombings, which were routine during that period in Chicago. Throughout the use of these tactics, there was a concerted effort to confine black people to a confined area in the city of Chicago. And then as the numbers grew and that confinement became virtually impossible because there simply wasn't enough housing, and as blacks became more ingrained and and accustomed to living in the city, there was an opportunity to acquire property. 
to amass wealth like their white counterparts, because there had been such a movement in the early 40s and 50s, because after all, I told you, the City Beautiful movement early on in the 1900s and then continuing uh, spurred by the federal government's policies, the idea was that home ownership was what? The American dream. And so as Blacks came to aspire to that American dream, uh, there were groups or syndicates, as they called them, not the mafia syndicate, but these were supposed to be legal syndicates. I put that in quotes (laughs) of doctors and lawyers and other professional people with dollars to invest partnered with realtors for blockbusting and redlining. Now, what does blockbusting mean? Well, it meant that realtors were, would literally go to blacks that, blocks that were integrated, areas, neighborhoods on the south side, on the west side, that were integrated and say, the blacks are coming. The blacks are coming. Don't you want to sell? And that allowed them to buy low and sell high. Well, who did they sell high to? Well, I'll tell you who they sold high to. They sold high to us, those aspiring black homeowners. But they didn't sell high in the traditional sense that black people could purchase and then uh, pay a mortgage like their white counterparts, they couldn't get mortgages. And so they sold on land contracts, many of which were five to 10 times more than the purchase price and quite frankly, the value of the homes they were purchasing. And the fact that they were sold at these high rates meant that it was virtually impossible to keep up with the payments. Bruce Ornstein, Sharon McCloskey, and their team at Duke University have called this the plunder of black wealth in Chicago and have conservatively estimated it to have been between $3.2 and $4 billion taken from black residents in Chicago. Now, I, I want you to understand this. I don't want to belabor it, but I want you to understand because when you sell someone on a house on land contract, You don't get equity. And if you don't get equity, you can't use it to send your children to college. You can't use it to improve your home. You can't use it to build a business. You can't use it to do anything because you don't have it. And at a moment's notice, if you fall a day behind on the rent, then you have lost your house. The house in many instances that you thought you owned. And so $4 billion, and that's a conservative estimate. And let's be clear, all of this was done with the assistance of banks, realtors, the judicial system, and other institutions. Y'all see where I'm going, right? So, so much of who we are or who we become in life flows from where we are born and raised. It impacts how and where we are educated. It impacts our health 
and the health care systems we have access to. It impacts the cultural amenities that we enjoy or just the everyday amenities. And it ultimately impacts our goals and aspirations and our abilities to achieve them. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that if there was a system that created these challenges, because, you know, nobody grows up and says, I want to grow up to be a drive-by shooter, right? If there was a system that created these challenges, then we have to develop systemic solutions to change it. Now, like so many of you in this room, I dare say, like the overwhelming majority of you in this room, the Urban League is working on changes. Uh, We have impact program. I have any impact alum in the house? Of course we do. Uh, We have the Ignite program that's newly started. We have our first class, uh, both leadership programs to equip the next generation of black leaders to serve both civically and professionally. We have a Jobs of the Future initiative where we are teaching solar installation and AWS, tech jobs, um, elevator repair, all kinds of jobs that should never go out of uh, service. Uh, We're teaching folks to operate drones because State Farm and Allstate are now using drones instead of sending people up on roofs. Uh, We have an appraisal bias initiative, multifaceted, because we want to get to the root of the issue. And we believe that it's not just the appraisers, it's not just the realtors, but we think the banks and other lenders have a role to play. We believe HUD and the state have a role to play. And so we're developing an appraisal bias working group. Uh, Many of you uh, know about the Next One program. I know Stephanie Hickman was a part of that program. She's here today. And it's our business accelerator. And so we work with the business community. But the reality is that as much as We love those programs and we talk about those programs and as hard as we work in those programs, those are just what I refer to as one-offs. And what we're really working to do is develop systemic changes. And so that's why we're now not just looking at solar, but we're looking at all things sustainability. And in fact, use this as a commercial to invite you to our equity in clean air and water summit on May 2nd at the Marriott Marquis, because we're going to be talking about sustainability in a comprehensive way. The work that we're doing with the appraisal bias is another approach that we're taking to comprehensive change. There are some other examples that I would suggest to you that are evident of systemic or comprehensive change. Um, The work that we do with the CBOC Collective, uh, 16 workforce organizations, and I know many of them are here today, uh, led by uh, Karina Ayala Bermejo and Kathleen Caliente, and myself, where in Cleophis Lee, where we work together to bring our individual entities together to scale our work in the workforce area. Because again, we're focused on systemic change. But initiatives like Austin Ford, uh, the city plans that have been developed 
or the community plans that have been developed for South Shore and for many of our other communities. Those are evidence of how we can address things systemically. The work that they did, that we did at Chicago State to look at the development of an equity plan to get more black students in college. That's a systemic plan. But here's the thing that I will tell you. While all of those systems changes are good, that none of the folks that I talked about or a few of the people that I talked about who contributed to the problem in the first place are all in. Don't get me wrong. Some of you, many of you in the room, Northern Trust, BMO, are in. But we need everybody to be all in if we are going to undo the damage that has been done. Now, that's a little unnerving, right? Because after all, just like there were losers to the systems that were created, over the course of time, there were some winners. And the winners are concerned that if you start fixing things for the losers, then you're going to create a problem for me because I was a winner. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, the reason that my earlier premise was all of us versus the racial wealth gap was because if we all work together, all of the funders like the Chicago Community Trust that has specifically called out addressing the racial and ethnic wealth gap, if we all work together, then no one has to lose. You know, I always get concerned when people get nervous when you start talking about giving somebody else a larger piece of the pie because they think that automatically means what? You're going to take my part. I'm going to get a smaller piece. It doesn't have to work that way. Ultimately, we can all enjoy a larger piece of the pie if we all make it our mission to address the racial wealth gap. The last thing I want to tell you is that we have a... Um, collective incentive to do that. Everybody in this room, myself included, has said somebody needs to do something about the crime in this city. All on swivel. And arguably, one of the reasons that there was a decision that, like the one that we saw in the mayor's race was largely driven by crime. I got a newsflash for you all. Mayor's not going to change crime. I don't care who you elect. Paul, Brandon... Because the mayor did not cause crime. And so each of us, every one of us, even if you work in corporate America, community-based organizations, education, at all levels, each of us has something that we can do. The question is, 
What will compel you to join the fight against the racial wealth gap? Thank you. And um, I'll take any questions. some water. Yeah. So, yeah, sometimes some of the things that we discuss here are a bit heavy. And uh, if you know Karen, she cuts no corners. She is as real as they come. And if you don't have you, and I'm not talking to the majority of the people in this room, but if you don't have you a good, good friend who will tell you like a T.I. is, um, consider Karen that friend. Um, I will tell you that my dad used to talk about this stuff when I was little, but I wasn't the daughter that he talked finance with. It was my sister. I was the one that, you know. You all act like you don't know what I'm talking about. There were the daughter who got the, you know, the nice talk. And then there was a daughter who got the business talk. I wasn't that one. But um, I am grateful because I had the opportunity to work with and grow up uh, from a professional perspective with none other than Connie Lindsay. And, yeah, you heard that roar in the room. Oh, yeah. Um, that's something you can be jealous of me for because I will tell you, there have been more conversations that have been difficult, sat in my seat wiggling. Jamie, Connie, I mean, Kelly, I mean, Kim, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? You kind of left like, oh. But she left me with the ability, the vernacular, the um, financial acumen to be able to understand these types of conversations. And if you don't have you a friend like that, get you one. Because this is not a changing, this is not something that's going to change um, overnight. Um, Mayor Karen just said the mayor's not going to fix the crime problem. Um, I think it's up to all of us, right? So there are things that we need to do. And I appreciate you, Mayor Karen, for bringing these things to um, the forefront. I do hope that um, everybody shares this with someone because certainly this is a conversation that needed to be heard. And I appreciate you for being bold enough and bad enough to say it. She said, so I have a joke about my Gary friends and that is that they're my friends for life. I'm a, I, I love my friends from Gary. I am never going to say anything bad about them because I may need them in a crunch. You know, um, I'm a little weirded out here. Amanda, do we have any questions? That's just crazy. Okay. Well, of course you do. Now, you know, I don't allow questions from the, from the, from the seat, but okay, Thomas. And if it's not clean, I'm gonna have to cut you later, but <laughs> what's your question? Now, the mayor standing next to you is sitting at the forefront of an idea of equity and inclusion in the city of Chicago right now. So I'm a. I, I meant to say this to Jackie. I'm gonna say it to all of y'all. Don't call me mayor anymore. Because, see, that comes with a whole set, you know, garbage, potholes, getting trolled on social media. You know, there haven't been any memes about me in about four years. Now, um, thank you, uh Thomas, for that question, uh, you are absolutely right. And so, and I, I'll talk about two things um, that because it's a different um, position from uh, your father's or grandfather's or great grandfather's uh, because we were established in 1960, Urban League. Um, 
And that is um, our role in development. And the way that this evolved really does speak to what I mean when I talk about systemic change. And so, you know, the city of Chicago, like so many cities, are full of developers. Um, when Bob Dunn came to us at the league, he came and said, I would like you to uh, partner with us on One Central. We're going to build this uh, civic build. It's uh, transit-oriented development. And we want you all to focus on jobs and uh, subcontracts for businesses. And, um, you know, we're going to do this. Uh, at that time, it was Southside Works. We changed it to Eth- uh, Equity Works. We're going to do this in phases uh, four and five of the project. And, you know, uh, we'd like for you all to come in. I said, well, why can't we do it in phase one? And then um, they, he said, okay, okay. And I said, and... When you talk about jobs and subcontracts, let's look at how to remove the barriers. And here's what I'll say to his credit. He readily agreed. What do I talk about when I'm removing barriers? If you've got a stack of bid documents this high and you are even a big business like Trice Construction, it's still going to be a barrier to have to read those documents. So you have to remove barriers like wading through the bidding documents, like bonding, like having the capital. That's what Equity Works does for those participants, those equity participants in the South Side, in the um, One Central Project. Another aspect of that is you say you want to create jobs for folks, but you have to ensure that people are ready to work. You can't have the jobs available on the first day and haven't trained folks to work those jobs. You have to have a ramp up to the job availability. Equity Works does that. And then there needed to be something other than jobs and business contracts, because the reality is that with jobs and business contracts, the people who get the jobs and the people who get the contracts and maybe their employees, they win. But it's not as wide spread as we wanted it to be. So we talked about creating a an investment fund, a community investment fund that will be $20 million a year over the course of 10 years that will then spur additional investment. That's a change of systems. And that is anticipated to be something that can be a model for other development going forward. That's Equity Works. So one of the things that uh, I've called her Karen for years, and then I somebody was like, "You're supposed to call her Mayor Karen." So why did you put me bust call, me out like that? She just gonna bust me all out in front of everybody. Um, what she talked about is so. Uh, tied inextricably to, you know, the health, the education, the wealth, and just the life of um, those of us who look like me. And, you know, black and brown people just, it's just hard because there's so much, this is so rich. This literally, we could do a whole series on Dan. Literally, we could do a whole series. And there's so much, I mean, the health, the, it's just a lot. Um, so, uh, Rufus Williams, who is a member says those engaged in the practices well understand the lessons you've shared today. How do we truly compel everyone who had a mate had to make an impact to insist in addressing, to assist in addressing the racial equity issue and your thoughts on, you really want me to say that, Rufus? Man. 
Man, he says, what are your thoughts on reparations? So, I'm just going to go take a seat. I, <laughs> so, I, one, I think it is achievable. Now, what I didn't say, and here's the first thing. I've got assigned uh, an assignment for you all. If you have not seen uh, The Shame of Chicago, The Color Tax, uh, which is Bruce Ornstein's documentary about uh, land contracts, that's your assigned video for today. So before you um, look at, you know, CNN and all of that, or for those of you who are like me and watch a little edgier TV, the Real Housewives or whatever you watch, I want you to take a look at that um, video because it lays out everything that happened. Um, as I said earlier, they've quantified it conservatively at about $4 billion. I think that is the best case for reparations. That Now, I don't know, um, and quite frankly, I, don't, I, I do know that it is not likely that we will get everybody a check, right? But there are ways to develop reparations programs like they've done in Evanston using the R3 dollars that will lead to home ownership, that will support uh, black residents, and that will support people who have been historically harmed by um, what has happened. So I absolutely support reparations um, in Congress. It's H.R. 1, but um, I was watching something um, earlier, and I don't know if it, I can't remember. Oh, I do know it was um, Robin Kelly uh, Saturday who was saying, who reminded us it's a study. But here's the thing. I think it should start here in Chicago. Now, why do I say that? Because we were the ones that took our model restrictive covenants and disseminated them throughout the country because they had to figure out a way to get around the Supreme Court saying that specifically saying where blacks could and couldn't live was a violation of their constitutional rights. And so the brain trust here in Chicago that developed the Chicago plan, you know, that plan we often refer to with pride. Well, the brain trust said, we got it. Don't y'all worry. We have a way to keep black folks living where they ought to live and sent that just like they were sending a recipe for something good all over the country. So we need to start the solution right here. So our treasurer, our treasurer Omar, has a question about redlining. But Omar, I just got a little bug in my ear that says we're going to do a series. So I'm pretty excited about this, right? Um, and it's about, you know, how has CRA helped? I happen to know that you're sitting at a table with somebody who could tell you CRA inside and out and backwards and frontwards and far better than what I could do in 30 seconds. So I'm going to defer that question if you don't mind, sir. Um, oh, would you say, you want to answer? Yeah, just, oh, just really quick. see, this is what happens when your friends come and speak. She's like, I got that. I'm, let me just back up and let Karen answer the questions. No matter what time we're over. So I, I'm sorry. Um, I'll, I'll answer it very quickly. CRA helps, but CRA really only works when somebody's in trouble. Um, every other time it kind of scratches the surface or when there's a merger um, underway, like with BMO and the Bank of the West. Now you see a very significant commitment to investment. And what I'm suggesting is the uh, investment that we just saw from them, the investment that we see from, uh, and, and even when uh, the investments that we saw when George Floyd got uh, murdered, those are the investments that should be routine.
I am here for this series, Dan and Amanda. I can't wait for you to get it together. Um, before we thank Karen, I'm going to ask another good friend, Torrance Hinton, who is the president of People's Gas, if you'd come up and pull the... Andrew, you see me shaking this up really good for you, don't you? Andrew always trying to win something. He even closed his eyes. <laughs> um, Gwen McNutt, are you here? Okay. So Amanda will take care of you. You don't have to have to come up here, but we'll get uh, from Comcast, right? Amanda is regional external affairs manager, Greater Chicago Region. Yeah. I got a lot going on up here. Okay, so uh, we love having Karen come because again, she's a real one, and she's going to tell you like it is. So we ought to all leave here a little bit uncomfortable today. Uh, simply because you don't always get to hear this. You get to hear it in, um, I'm looking at Jamil, he's shaking his head. You oftentimes don't get to hear this like this. So thank you, Karen, for coming. Here is your year, uh, your year membership. <laughs> and she really does use hers, I will tell you that. She um, uses hers and comes frequently. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I didn't know you were coming today. And she'll be like, you didn't need to know I'm here. So, um <laughs> Thank you. She does. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Karen, for coming and telling it like it is. Thank you, Urban League and Chicago Community Trust and everybody for the hard work that you do in this area. It is not easy. And I know a lot of this was preaching to the choir today, but tell a friend, share a friend. It's on the, the, um, the, what's it called, Dan? The web, the, you can go video, right? You can go and send it to a friend. So please do so because this is a conversation that I think several other people could have heard. Thank you for staying over because we went over a little bit. We are adjourned. Yes, take a picture.